Hello and welcome back to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host Lizzie and today is episode 12 and the very last episode of 2022. So thank you so much for sticking with us uh, our first year, our first 12 episodes and on to bigger and better things uh, and more historical true crime episodes in 2023. So today we're heading back to France in the 1700s, 1800s, and we're going to be covering the life of Eugene Francois Vidoc. You might be familiar with the name. He is hailed as the father of criminology. You might be wondering, well, why are you covering him on historical true crime? Well, Vidoc successfully overcame his early years that included thievery, fraud, womanizing, to eventually become a force for good in the battle against crime. His influence from the 18th century can still be felt today. He served as the model for many well-known literary characters, and his proficiency in French criminal justice served as the inspiration for contemporary law enforcement agencies like the FBI and Scotland Yard. Vidocq's brilliance was based on a single, straightforward idea. You have to be able to think like a criminal if you want to catch a criminal. And that was no problem for him because he was a criminal. I want to start with Vidoc's early life, uh, go into his crimes, his many crimes. Uh, and then at the end of the podcast, we'll talk about his uh, influence on modern day criminology and his crime fighting days. So Nicolas Joseph Francois Vidoc was a professional baker and his wife, Henriette Francoise Vidoc, lived in Arras, France. Eugene was born on July 24th, 1775, and was their third child. The early years of Vidoc are not well known, but by historical standards of the time, we could consider his father to be wealthy, due to his education and his work as a grain dealer. Despite France's severe economic problems in the 1770s and 1780s, uh, Vidoc Sr. was able to make a nice profit by trading in grain. Vidoc Jr. had the opportunity to have a decent education because of this, although he didn't really do anything to take advantage of his situation. So for the rest of the podcast, I will be referring to Eugene as Vidoc, just to keep things straight. So Vidoc was a troubled teen who was often getting into fights and looking for money to spend getting drunk with the nearby garrison soldiers. He and his older brother started stealing from the bakery when their father reduced their allowance. Now, his older brother was discovered and ordered to work as an apprentice. In retaliation, Vidoc stole the family plates and sold them at a pawn shop. This led to his very first stint in jail, which his father ordered for two weeks in the hopes that it would scare him into obedience. Well, that didn't work at all, because instead, he breaks into his parents' business, takes 2,000 francs from the register, and flees. Originally, Vidoc had planned to travel by ship to America, but his plans fall through because he makes a poor decision the night before. He decides to go out drinking with a sailor that he had just met. Well, when he wakes up in the morning, his money is gone. He considered just joining a ship, uh, but decided against it after learning that there was a circus in town. Uh, That didn't go well either, because Vidoc was afraid of the animals, struggled with the acrobatics, and he refused to consume live chickens on stage. Although I don't really blame him for that last one. 
The final straw is when uh, Vidoc is caught kissing the puppeteer's wife during a puppet show and is forced to leave the circus and head back to his hometown. So needing to figure out his next step, uh, Vidoc will make the decision to serve in the army after he reconciles with his family. In 1791, the newly established Republic of France was in conflict with the crowned monarchs of Europe. Vidoc was a good fit for the French army. Uh, In his first six months, he engaged in 15 duels and gained the moniker Reckless. He was hospitalized for some of those fights, but he did kill two of his opponents and won the majority of his duels. He performed admirably against the Austrians, earning him a promotion to corporal. However, when he attempted to challenge a sergeant major to a duel, he was instead detained for disobeying orders. He decided to desert rather than continue to risk a court-martial and eventual death. But Vidoc doesn't stay AWOL for very long. He simply enlists under a false identity in another unit. He again deserts because he's discovered, and this time he crosses the lines and joins the Austrians in a French royalist battalion. He left the Austrians and goes back to France when the French army offers an amnesty for deserters. He was wounded in the leg after more misadventures in the army, which included more duels, and in 1793 he's sent back to Arras. Now, Arras is a completely different city when Vidoc returned. The terror was in full swing, and the guillotine in the town square was well-stocked with enemies of the Republic. Vidoc got into trouble for himself uh, after a disagreement with the local regiment's musician, who had him detained and accused him of being a royalist. After being pardoned by a respectable local attorney, he begins dating Marie-Anne-Louise Chevalier, the attorney's sister. They marry quite quickly because she has a pregnancy scare, but uh, they do realize shortly after that she's not actually expecting. Uh, Vidoc spends her dowry and then discovers her in bed with another man. Uh, They separate, uh, never to reconcile, and eventually get divorced in 1805, despite her claims that her son, who is born six years later, was actually Vidocs. So after separating from uh, his first wife, he makes his home in Brussels, which is ruled by France at the time. His mother continues to send him money uh, while he works as a bodyguard for a group of card sharks. Unfortunately, he is detained, and when asked for identification, he didn't have any because he had deserted the army twice. He submits a false identity, saying he goes by the name Rousseau, and gives Lille as his place of birth. That meant when he was transported back to Lille, he knew he'd be put to death for deserting because no one would know him there. Uh, He eventually manages to slip away and travel back to Brussels, where his new criminal buddies assist him in obtaining some false identities. With the aid of these new false documents, he eventually joins the so-called Armée Roulante, literally meaning Rolling Army, a gang of 2,000 con artists who roamed the nation acting as a regular army division and funding themselves as such while traveling under false orders. Unfortunately, they do have to disband when the real army arrives to deal with them. Vidoc decides to run away to Paris, uh, where he proceeds to lose every penny to his name. He goes back to Lille, 
where he had previously lived and starts seeing another woman uh, named Francine. When she cheats on him, he assaults her lover, which results in his arrest. He then begins a period spent studying in what he refers to as the University of Crime, also known as prison. Soon after entering prison, he makes friends with a number of inmates, including a man named Sebastian Boitel, who received a six-year sentence for stealing. Now, the local inspector is pretty intrigued when Boitel is abruptly released shortly after Vidoc arrives. He quickly learns that Boitel's early release paperwork is actually a forgery, and who did they suspect? Well, the doc and another prisoner, Cesar. Uh, they are actually put on trial for falsifying official documents. According to an article on headstuff.org by Conleaf, uh, Vidoc makes repeated attempts to flee, but is always apprehended and put back in prison. Francine, his wife, girlfriend, uh, assisted him in, this, uh, in these escape attempts until he makes the error of uh, cheating on her after running into an ex-girlfriend. She actually stabs herself with a knife and accuses him of trying to kill her, which she does later retract. The second time he does manage to get away, he leaves the city and heads towards the seaside. He considers again trying to go to America, but is unable to finance it. So he decides he's going to join a group of smugglers instead. Well, the doc chooses to rejoin with Francine after deciding, well, you know, smuggling isn't for me. And together they travel to Holland. He is, however, recognized and detained once again when he goes to meet her in Lille. So if you're anything like me, you probably had trouble keeping track of all of those escape attempts. Um, But what you need to know is that despite escaping over and over and over again, he does eventually get caught. So Vidoc and Cesar are found guilty and given an eight-year sentence of hard labor when the judgment is finally delivered in December of 1796 in the uh, forgery trial. Vidoc will make many more unsuccessful attempts to break out of jail. But one thing we know about Vidoc is that he simply does not give up. So he keeps trying to escape and uh, eventually he is successful. He makes his way through Paris, Arras, Brussels, Anser, and eventually Rotterdam, while all while eluding capture. However, the Dutch decide to Shanghai him while he's in Holland and he ends up becoming a privateer. So his time as a pirate uh, does come to an end when he's apprehended and sent back to prison. In March of 1800, he reportedly manages to escape with the help of a prostitute uh, and decides to return to Arras. Unfortunately, uh, in 1799, so just the year before, his father had already passed away. Before being tracked down, arrested, and informed that he'd been giving a death sentence in his absence for his crime, Vidoc had actually tried to begin to establish a solid legal reputation as a businessman in Arras. But his life on the straight and narrow was very short-lived. Uh, he decides to file an appeal against his death sentence, but when he, uh, or while he awaits his outcome, he jumps from a jail window and fled for four years. So Vidoc makes his way to Paris, where he witnesses an old acquaintance uh, being executed and reportedly experiences a flash of enlightenment. As a result, again, he's going to decide to 
to try his best to stay out of trouble, uh, but he's always on that razor's edge, and he had to settle up with any of his old friends that he comes across. He does attempt to make money legally, but thieves in Paris convince him or threaten him to fence stolen items. And his ex-wife, Anne-Marie Chevalier, also decides at this time that to blackmail him. So his attempt at a straight life once again fails. The now 34-year-old fugitive decides to turn himself in to the Paris police. He gives a comprehensive account of his very colorful past. He's frustrated, he's desperate, and perhaps just simply tired of the life of a fugitive. Additionally, he offers them his assistance as an informant. Uh, So he is taken up on that offer and he's sent back to prison, but only to act as an informant. He's trusted by the prisoners and his mission becomes a huge success. He questions his fellow inmates for a total of 21 months while also providing information to the Paris police chief, Jean Henri, uh, about things like counterfeit identities and just general unsolved crimes. Now, they couldn't just let Vodok out of prison without creating a lot of suspicion. So an escape was planned in order to avoid creating mistrust among his fellow prisoners, and that occurred on March 25th, 1811. So once again, Vodok has escaped jail, although this time more in a legal way. But even though he's out of prison, he's not really free. He's now obligated to the police chief. And as a result, he'll keep working as a secret agent uh, for the Paris police. He uses his connections, his reputation, and his pretense of being an escaped prisoner and dives into the criminal scene. He actually partially apprehends wanted criminals himself and does have a high rate of success. But his work with the Paris police or his work as a secret agent has to be kept secret, in part to save Vidoc from fallout and in part because his work was just really novel at the time. Spies were widely used by the French police, but Vidoc's greatest invention was organizing and professionalizing them. He persuades the authorities to grant him permission to establish uh, La Brigade de Sûreté, the security brigade, a section of the police that could operate in plain clothes throughout the entire city. Since most police forces were restricted to a single area of responsibility, this came to define the security brigade. They would eventually go on to become La Sûreté Nationale with control over all of France. By 1817, Vidoc had 12 men working for him, most of whom were also ex-cons and had colorful pasts of their own. The department kept extensive records and experimented with early forensic science techniques, including ballistics and fingerprinting. The men Vidoc led were incredibly effective. So Jean-Philippe Steed, uh, Vidoc's biographer, claims that in just one year, he and his crew made, quote, 811 arrests, including 15 assassins, 341 thieves, and 38 receivers of stolen property. 14 escaped prisoners were recaptured, 43 men who had broken their parole were brought in, and 229 bad characters were arrested and banished from the city. 39 searches and seizures of stolen goods were made, 46 forgers, swindlers, and confidence men were captured. And if this is accurate, just an incredible rate of success. 
But the fact that he employed primarily criminals uh, horrified the old guard police officers, and it did earn Vidoc a lot of enemies. Uh, He's effectively cut off from the establishment as a result. But this actually worked a bit in his favor because it meant that he is undisturbed by the upheaval around him. And this resulted from Napoleon's removal, his return from exile, and his further removal in 1814. In reality, Vidoc and his uh, security forces had enough work thanks to the schemes of first the royalists, uh, then the anti-royalists, and no matter what side he uh, was working for or with, um, he was doing good work, and the king ultimately grants him a pardon for his prior misdeeds, and this occurs in 1817. Over the following few years, Vidoc enjoys a great deal more success, both inside and outside of Paris. Uh, Chauffeurs, which means heaters, were a criminal band that lived in the French countryside. And they get their name because they would break into homes and keep the occupants' feet in the fireplace while they searched for valuables. Um, Prudence also referred to as the Wolf of Rancourt, a 72-year-old woman was the leader of this once infamous gang. Vidoc had to join them on three raids to infiltrate them and suggest the ideal victim, an elderly, wealthy guy who lived alone. And this was all in order to bring down the gang. Although it was a real target, when they attacked, they discovered it was a trap. And all of them were captured or killed. Despite his professional success, Vidoc actually experiences a lot of tragedy in 1824. In June, his wife passes away, and in July, his mother. He's profoundly impacted by both of these passings, and his only remaining relative in Paris is his cousin. Uh, She was also likely his mistress for a considerable amount of time before that. Um, And she'll go on to marry him six years later in 1830. King Louis will also pass away in 1824, and his successor Charles will take his place. This is going to be bad news for Vidoc's career, because Charles is a staunch conservative who has little time for ex-offenders working as cops. His ruling provides uh, Vidoc's adversaries carte blanche to attack him in a variety of painful and effective ways. By 1828, Vidoc has resigned from his position because he is weary of being constantly harassed by rivals in the police force. Instead, he establishes a printing business, again primarily managed by ex-cons, and begins work on publishing his memoirs. Of course, it's widely believed that the book was ghostwritten because Vidoc actually had little formal education and had spent his formative years uh, juggling duels, crime, and prison. His memoir titled, literally, The Memoirs of Vidoc, Chief of Police of the Cirate until 1827, and now proprietor and maker of papers uh, from Saint-Mandé, was published in 1828 and became an instant bestseller. His memoirs were frequently reprinted in the 19th century periodicals, penny dreadfuls, and dime novels, although they were frequently plagiarized and rewritten to exaggerate his exploits even further. By 1929, two plays based on his memoirs were already being produced on the London stage, making a lot of Vidoc's penchant for disguise, knowledge of the criminal life, and familiarity with the underworld. 
But in every one of them, Vidoc is unmistakably a detective. A plainclothes officer who persistently pursues criminals through the back alleys and streets of Paris and into the countryside, knocking on doors, asking questions, donning disguises, and using various ruses before coming clean and making the arrest. Vidoc is consistently portrayed as brave, courageous, and bold. He served as a key inspiration for everyone from Charles Dickens, Balzac, and Victor Hugo to Edgar Allan Poe and Arthur Conan Doyle. Even though it might not have been based on Vidoc's real life, much of the detection that was to be part of crime fiction until the 1860s ultimately does derive from Vidoc's stories. Uh, according to Stephen Knight in Crime Fiction Since 1800, Detection Death and diversity. When Vidoc retires, he's wealthy, but he makes the decision to attempt to do some good and also at the same time to make a profit. Uh, So in a town just outside of Paris, um, he establishes a paper plant. His goal is to employ ex-offenders who typically had trouble finding honest jobs in order to aid in the rehabilitation. Uh, Of course, this plan scared the pious hypocrites of the neighborhood um, who thought the idea was excellent in theory, but objected if it was going to be in their own backyard. Uh, The customers who bought the goods also wanted a significant discount instead of paying fair market price. And that was the real death blow to his business. So Vidoc has to declare bankruptcy in 1831 as a result of the costs, uh, and the factory is just shut down. But during the period of Vidoc's retirement, the crime rate in Paris had increased significantly, and the police were more focused on quelling resistance against King Charles. They were unsuccessful, and he was removed from power by the July Revolution of 1830. The monarchy had not, however, collapsed. Louis-Philippe, a more liberal distant cousin, uh, had taken the throne. But during the upheaval, Vidoc's adversaries inside the police had also been compelled to retire. The setting was laid for his return. And after he helped the police with a few issues, the police chief was persuaded to reinstate him as leader of the Surete. Uh, But you know, the new position doesn't last very long. Uh, There's many elements at play here, but the key one was that he, um, as the police, had to also be the monarchy's protector. His past made him a very easy target for the Republican press, and his questionable tactics were exposed, his victories were downplayed, while his setbacks were emphasized. Vidoc supported proactive policing, which frequently included downright entrapment. Vidoc attempted to defend his covert agents as they committed crimes in order to keep their identities a secret. Vidoc was then accused of undermining prosecution witnesses in general, and in November of 1832, he has to submit his resignations once again. But if we've learned anything about Vidoc, it's that you shouldn't count him out. So what does he do? Well, he establishes the first private detective agency in the world in 1833, when he's in his late 50s. It's primarily a private version of his security force and has close to a dozen agents, most of whom, again, are ex-cons. They focused primarily on debt recovery and assisting con artist victims in getting their money back in exchange for percentage commission. 
might not come as a surprise to learn that Vidoc and his employees were not above breaking the law or taking shortcuts. As a result, Vidoc soon finds himself once again facing charges, this time for making an illegal arrest of an embezzler and stealing the money that had been stolen. After being found guilty, he's given a five-year prison term and a 3,000 franc fine. It seems that the official police force were none too fond of Vidoc's new agency, were suspicious of his wealth, power, influence, and his employees. In particular, they were suspicious of the legality of his work, and they frequently raided his offices. As a result, Vidoc found himself as a guest of the state, facing more charges of obtaining money through deception, bribing public officials, um, but he promptly files an appeal. And in February of 1838, following the testimony of multiple witnesses, the judge does dismiss all accusations, allowing Vidoc to walk free after just serving an 11-month sentence. Nevertheless, the legal process and almost a year in jail had taken a financial and physical toll. He's currently in his 60s, uh, and Vidoc discovers that his reputation is in ruins, and rumors about him are spreading like wildfire possibly thanks to his political rivals. Vidoc thinks about selling his agency because business is slowed down, but there simply aren't any takers. So he does keep on publishing novels, this time to defend his reputation, uh, and he writes an essay about prisons, penitentiaries, and the death penalty that's published in 1844. Uh, But personally, after 17 years of marriage, his third wife, Floride, passes away in 1847. And in 1849, Vidoc is once again detained and accused of fraud. He remains in prison for a short while before the matter is withdrawn. Uh, And then he goes on to live a fairly tranquil life, occasionally spending time with a woman, and the agency only infrequently accepts cases. He continues to live for another 11 years, despite numerous unsuccessful investments, which cost him a significant portion of his wealth. He even manages to survive a case of cholera. But Vidoc does eventually pass away on May 11th of 1857. During Vidoc's lifetime, his reputation had already begun to spread, propelled by both his own need for attention, but also his relationship with writers uh, like Balzac, who drew inspiration from his writings and personality for a number of characters, um, including a few characters actually in Les Mis. It's rumored that both of the central figures of Les Miserables, the escaped prisoner Valjean and the police officer officer Javier, um, were both inspired by Vidoc at various points in his life. Because of his friendship in the literary and theatrical communities, plays and stories about Vidoc's escapes uh, or escapades were frequently published. However, Vidoc's contribution to police work is his biggest legacy. Even though his contributions to criminology are frequently exaggerated, the professional force of plainclothes police investigators he established was quickly imitated all over the world. Historians refer to Vidoc as the father of contemporary criminology. He's credited with bringing criminology, ballistics, covert work, and record keeping to the field of criminal investigation. And all the way in 1990, we have Frank Bender, a forensic artist and sculptor who established the Vidoc Society in Philadelphia. Uh, So forensic specialists, FBI profilers, 
homicide detectives, scientists, psychologists, coroners, and any other qualified professionals are among its members. In accordance with their slogan, Veritas uh, Veritatum, Truth Generates Truth, they attempt to resolve cold cases from all around the world at their monthly meetings, and their membership rules have been locked, so the total number of members never rises over Vidoc's lifespan. And with that, we come to the end of episode 12 of Historical True Crime. Uh, And I know I've said this before, but honestly, what a wild ride. Uh, Vidoc's life was colorful. Um, It was filled with escapes and time in prison, but also with an incredible contribution uh, to modern day criminology. So I hope you've enjoyed uh, this episode. And if you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion, you can find us on Instagram at historical true crime pod, or you can reach us at our email, which is historical true crime pod at gmail.com. We'll see you next week for another dark and mysterious case from history. We'll see you then.